When Sophia's friend moves far away, she's left feeling friendless. That feeling won't last long, however, as Dorothy has come to her rescue, inviting Sophia to join her on her dates with new beau, Raymond. But having your mother join as a third wheel is difficult at any age. So after weeks of dating as a threesome, Dorothy is given an ultimatum. Alone time with Raymond, the boyfriend, or keeping her mother company. Will Dorothy join Ray on a romantic trip to the Bahamas? Will Sophia invite herself along or read the room? Will it be Rose or Blanche that becomes the new fashion show chairman for the Tinkerbells? All of that and what the crow said in today's episode, and Ma Makes Three. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. We're back from clip show land, and this time it's blue dress and yellow apron wearing Rose, who is working hard at the stove when the episode begins. As she pokes away at what is sure to be some sort of Nordic nightmare of a dish, Sophia comes in, appearing a bit glum. Her being down is confirmed when Rose asks Sophia how she's doing. Well, now that you've asked, she has ringing in her ears, aching joints, and as she came down the hall, her butt fell two more inches down her backside. So she's doing all right. When offered chocolate chip pancakes from Rose, Sophia passes. To sweeten the offer, Rose adds that they're just pancakes with chocolate chips in them. Oh, and they'll be topped with honey, whipped cream, syrup, and brown sugar. Offended by the sugar content, Sophia suggests that since men weren't born with their teeth in a baggie, perhaps God didn't intend for anyone to eat like that. After being reprimanded, Rose sarcastically apologizes for having been so kind as to bother offering her friend breakfast. Sophia apologizes, admitting that she is feeling a bit colicky. And it's certainly not because her best friend Bernice has moved all the way to Chicago. It's because the 85-year-old can't relate to the ABC drama 30-something. Starring Timothy Busfield and Peter Horton? Maybe. Well. I didn't recognize any of the names. (laughs) Timothy Busfield is a redhead guy you've definitely seen. Oh, yeah is in Revenge of the Nerds. And Peter Horton had sort of like longish, blondish, shaggy hair, kind of a sharp face, and I don't know. That's right. Oh. You're right. Peter Horton and uh, Timothy Busfield. And Patricia Wedig, is Mm -hmm. that how you say it? Yeah. 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 I've always liked her. Me too. She's the mom in City Slickers? Yes. Yep, that's right. She's got cool, chill mom vibes. Totally. I mean, she's pretty cool with a cow coming home at the end of the movie, City Slickers. She's like, I knew it'd be something. 30-something was a yuppie-filled show that ran from 87 to 91 and was an award season darling. Just like the girls, 30-something pushed boundaries and ended up losing sponsors after airing an episode showing a gay couple engaged in pillow talk. Oh. <laughs> 
That's right. Ah! Implying they had had coitus. Ah! Okay, so it isn't that. Sophia is upset about her friend moving. Consoling her with validation, Rose acknowledges how painful that can be. But before they can have any more comforting conversation, Ellen arrives. You're not getting any younger. So you're just going to have to work harder. Oh, my apologies. It's a freshly permed Blanche in a nightgown and new watercolor-inspired robe of blues, yellows, greens, and reds. And she's wound up as tight as the curls on her head. Ripping away Rose's breakfast, Blanche reminds her that she can't be wasting time on such trivial things as eating. She is to be focused on doing all of the work to get Blanche elected so she can achieve not only her dreams, but the American dream for all. And she'll be doing this as the fashion show chairman of the Tinkerbells. Before we can learn more about these Tinkerbells, Dorothy, in white pants, a dark and light pink shirt, and Pepto-Pink jacket, joins them, informing Rose that she needs to borrow a golf glove. She needs it, as she will be out on a golf date. Lighting up at the word date, Blanche quivers. Is it with a man? Guess Dorothy will be playing golf at the coast of North and South Carolina, as that is the home of Venus flytraps. Oh, never mind. Apparently Dorothy was just being sarcastic to Blanche. How weird. Also, that fact blew my mind. If you had asked me where Venus flytraps were from, I would think somewhere very exotic or tropical like the Amazon because that's home of very scary things. They're from here? North and South Carolina, baby. I knew there was something wrong with that place. (laughs) Charleston. (laughs) So yes, she has a date. And yes, it's with a man. And yes, it's with Raymond, the man she encountered at the grocery store. After he asked her for a coffee recommendation, she threw herself upon his cart until she was promised a date. That meet-cute was a few weeks prior, and they're still going out. They even enjoy each other's company. A new record for these ladies that tend to have a habit of dating cheaters or croakers. That's an official term for someone who dies during sex. Or it is now, at least. Rose and Blanche share Dorothy's delight. Everything she's told them about him has been wonderful. Dorothy concurs. He is wonderful and kind, and they've been enjoying getting to know each other. Sophia has one word of advice for her. Don't have sex with him. That'll just ruin everything. First, weird to assume that after a few weeks, these adults haven't slept together yet. Secondly, of course she wouldn't do that. She only sleeps with men she hopes to cause great psychological trauma to. Moving away from her mother's trash talking, Dorothy remembers Sophia got a letter in the mail from Bernice. Surprisingly, Sophia isn't interested in reading it. She knows that if she does, she'll just miss her even more, and she'll just be bummed out. Sophia's refusal has Dorothy worried. Bernice moved over a month ago. She can't just mourn or ignore her forever. For Sophia, it isn't just about Bernice. This was her last friend in town. Everyone else has moved, been sent to a home, or died. Well, except for Lillian. Aging has brought her some mental deficiencies, leading to her believing she had become the burlesque comic and star of the 1950s Pinky Lee show, Pinky Lee.
Pinky's over-the-top acts and performances would go on to inspire Howdy Doody and Pee Wee. His show ended when he actually collapsed on air. Since he was always looking for a reaction, everyone thought it was just part of a bit. He recovered but didn't return to the show, causing rumors for years that he had actually died that day due to a heart attack or had been sent to a mental institution. But that wasn't the case. He would eventually go on to host The Gumby Show. For someone in Sophia's age group, it isn't easy to make friends, a sentiment Rose shares after seeing how difficult it was for the first Eskimo family that moved to St. Olaf. First, let's correct the language. Eskimo is used in reference to the Inuit and Yupik tribes of Alaska and eastern Siberia. The problem with using Eskimo, it was a colonizer term, which was used in a derogatory manner towards the indigenous people of the area. So it's kind of like an N-word for the North. Rose probably didn't know that, so we'll pass on the oh boy for now. But she's earning it right back with her descriptions of the family's behaviors, trying to ice fish on the local skate rink, giving out whale blubber to trick-or-treaters. They even used all the neighborhood ice trays to build a larger igloo. I guess St. Olaf is cold. When Dorothy tries to get back to whatever point Rose was making, Rose is still stuck in story time, and instead of saying the point of her story, she assumes it's the point of the family adding to their house, which was because they were expecting a baby. Oh, she realizes she means the point of the story. Well, the point is that they started out as strangers, but were soon friends with the whole town. Hoping to drive the point home to Sophia, Blanche makes the mistake of asking a follow-up. Well, they all made friends because they put in the effort to do so, and they put themselves out there. Right? Right? Well, not really. It was more like they were celebrated than befriended. When St. Olaf faced a drought in 1949, their ice house melted and saved the town. I hope someone helped them rebuild. Sophia isn't alone in feeling like it's too hard to make new friends. In a study by One Poll presented by The Independent, it's been five years since the average American has made a new friend. Now, this was in 2019, so with the world-stopping pandemic, I'm sure these numbers haven't improved. In that survey, 45% of adults said it was difficult to make new friends, 42% of which blame their introversion for the hindrance. Other issues that lead to friendship-making difficulties, shyness, social situations, aversion to the bar scene, presumed already formed groups, relocation, lack of hobbies, and the demands of family life. Additionally, 45% of survey respondents said they would make an effort to create new friendships if they only knew how. Coco, I'm not sure that I want to make new friends. Yeah, I think I'm good. Maybe when I'm in my 80s and everything in life has shifted and settled, maybe I'll be like, yeah, I'm ready for some friends. But when, when maybe when people have calmed down a little bit <laughs> yeah, like, about everything. Once World War III comes to an end, maybe I'll start exploring that. It's been a rough week. <laughs> this last two years. 42. Hoping to make her ma feel better, Dorothy invites Sophia to come golfing with her and Raymond, her date. She's on board but needs to borrow someone's polyester outfit, which isn't just a jab at bad golf clothes. They are specifically made from polyester because the fabric is lighter than cotton, it's moisture-wicking, and durable. I guess so you don't wear out an armpit from all that swinging action? With Sophia on board, she leaves to get ready which basically consists of grabbing a donut pillow for her presumed hemorrhoids and some hard candies to suck on. 
While waiting for her mother, Dorothy answers the door. She isn't super excited to see Raymond because she knows she has to break the news to him about Sophia. Before they can get to that, he hands her a yellow flower and gives her an embrace and a kiss, which elicits the strangest response from the audience. Some give it an 80s, ooh. Some are just so damn happy for Dorothy, they're clapping. And by some, I mean like an awkward two or three people. And then a couple of people just giggle for good measure. It'd be, it's the same as just seeing your grandparents make out or something. It would make you giggle. You'd be uncomfortable. Oh, like the audience maybe felt You'd weird about sweet. it or something? Yeah, because it's just, I mean, I, I don't mean to be ageist, but I think people get uncomfortable with older people showing uh, uh, that sort of And it's affection. also a character. So even if someone went to the filming and was like excited to see the show, it's a character that literally that's the first introduction. And with filming differences, you maybe wouldn't know and be like, oh, has this guy been around? So you're not really sure of their relationship, maybe. So they're like, ooh. That makes sense that it was because the the audience had no prep for that. And they didn't think about that from a writing standpoint, that that would be very like jarring. Yeah. Something that you don't often see from Dorothy. Yeah. She's only had a couple relationships. I think it's because it's Dorothy. Like when it's Blanche, it's always ooh, like it you. It's automatically sexy. Yeah, and I think some people just flat out wanted to cheer for Dorothy, be like, "Yay, she actually got a man!" And they're kissing. And he's like a good guy too. Yeah, getting Dorothy all hot and bothered is Jacob Karnofsky, better known as James Karen, who had over two hundred screen and stage credits. His big break came when he was awarded the role of understudy for Broadway's A Streetcar Named Desire. Of his many, many, many famous roles, you may know him best from Eight is Enough, As the World Turns, All My Children, Wall Street, and The China Syndrome. He was the king of villains, playing a KKK leader on an episode of The Jeffersons, destroying the town in Little House on the Prairie finale, and for cursing an entire neighborhood as the greedy developer in Poltergeist. You son of a bitch, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones! You only moved the headstones! Before we get to another role of his, I'd like to share the fun fact that his child's godfather was silent film and comedy legend Buster Keaton. The Karens and Keatons were best friends through the years, and for someone who so often played a meanie, it warms my heart to know he was surrounded by happy, funny, wonderful people. Now to Coco's favorite role of James Karen, Return of the Living Dead, of which James explained he did most of the writing for his character. Quote, It was the deal where he figures out he's becoming a zombie and decides to incinerate himself in the crematorium. He kisses his wedding ring as he goes in. It was a very emotional scene. But it also got me out of being one of the rain-drenched zombies milling around outside the place at the end of the film. I didn't really want to do all that muddy stuff. Coco, Return of the Living Dead. It's one of my favorite movies, and it's on streaming services often, and whenever I come across it, I always watch it. I can't help it. I've probably seen it three or four times this year. And James Karen is... He and I think Tom Matthews is the guy who plays his... Uh, this trainee at the uh, medical supply warehouse where they work, where they get infected with the gas and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. They're like a really great comedy team because as they become more dead, they become more panicked. Mm. And it's 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 just a really great um, mutual experience those two guys have throughout <laughs> the movie. It's very funny. Return of the Living Dead is, I think, one of the best zombie movies. 
it's a classic. And it's it's a hilarious comedy. It has uh, really iconic zombies to me, like the Tar Man. And so 80s. And it's so 80s and, and punk. It's like yeah. R-rated. Like it's a real punk movie. The, yeah. And the soundtrack is incredible. The writing is incredible. It's uh, The screenplay was written by Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien. Oh, that's uh, cool. And I think he directed the movie too. He directed Return of the Living Dead. And yeah, it's just one of my favorites. It's one of the best. He's he's just so funny. And that scene where he does incinerate himself is really, it's funny at the same time as it's really disturbing and moving mm. that he's taking himself out of the equation because he doesn't want to live like that or die, be dead like that. Right. Oh, be dead like that. So yeah, he's great. Great in Poltergeist. Great in everything. I feel like he really gets how to be a villain because he's... He's always been likable, even when he's the bad guy. Like in Poltergeist, he just has this likability, even though he's the villain. That, to me, tells me that he was probably a really cool, nice guy because he could see what makes someone unlikable. Yeah. To where you're not like, oh, this guy must be a... You know, sometimes we watch stuff and we're like, you know, they tend to pick these roles. Maybe that's their sweet spot is being like this really bad person. And he seemed to have it because he knew what to what was unlikable about people. Yeah, and he's very good at playing an unaware yes. kind of doofy guy. Yeah, I was going to say aloof. He yeah. tends to be kind of yeah, you self-absorbed. Don't, and you don't know where he's coming from. Yeah. I th- yeah, it's, I think something about his voice lends to that feeling mm, of like self-absorption. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, yeah. I feel like his voice would be intoxicating. And maybe it is, even to himself. Yeah, because he's, um, it's not quite like newscaster, but it has but that to it. sort of authoritative... And maybe that's why he gets away with being the bad guy because he's automatically put in kind of a leader role at times. And he also says everything like he's your buddy. Yes. Even if it's horrible. Very confident. Yes. <laughs> Just the best. Well, we, we love him. We salute Celebrate you. his catalog. And you know what? I'll probably try to find a clip in here. Well, it's really funny you say uh, that because I literally wrote in here that I would have chosen a clip, but I would leave it to Coco because he'll just end up watching it while he's editing this episode. Definitely. But then the other day, because we had talked about him, you were already watching it. <laughs> so you'll probably watch it again and get a clip. I love James Karen. <laughs> now, Freddie, is it great? Here's something you don't see very often. You're a privileged person. These are split dogs. Wow. Yep, for veterinarian schools. Oh, we get a lot of orders for split dogs. That's really rad. Yeah. <sighs> don't fool around. You're learning. And there's, I mean, I, I just want to add this, too. There is a, I mean... Some stunning nudity that is like unlike yeah. unlike nudity in most movies. Yeah. It's it's wild. What's her name? Linnea Quigley. She is nude the entire film, kicks ass. Uh she's doing everything. You know, they're always like, oh, the ladies had to do everything the guys were doing, but in high heels. She's doing all of the zombie action insanity completely nude. Barefoot and nude. Yeah. And so like the entire time they filmed. Hey guys, welcome back to filming. I'm nude again. And she got it done and she rocks. And she's still awesome. Do you ever fantasize about being killed? Never. Do you ever wonder about all the different ways of dying? First, they would tear off my clothes. Let's get some light over here. Crash is taking off her clothes again. As the happy couple continues to smush their mouths together and the audience celebrates, Sophia is now ready to roll, and she's happy to offer them a piece of gum if they're stuck sharing one. 
Raymond, who has already met Sophia, greets her and apologizes for making out with a very pleased Dorothy. Oh, Sophia, can't you make things less confusing? Always with the get a date, get a man, get settled down. But then you expect an apology from a grown man for groping your daughter? Sheesh. As Sophia waves the lovers on now that she's ready to go, Raymond gets a titch confused. That's when Dorothy breaks the news. Sophia will be joining them for the golf game in hopes that it will raise her spirits. Playing along, Raymond shares how delighted he is to have Sophia's company, to which she totally understands, who wouldn't want her around. When asked if she's played much golf, she gets a little lost. Have I played? Have I played? Have I played? What exactly? Later in the week, Blanche, in an ocean green blouse and coral jacket, is checking off her list of duties for Rose to complete, when Rose, in a blouse that can only be described as dish towel chic, with gray vertical stripes and sporadic flowers, realizes that, with all the calls she's made and invites she's sent, she might as well run for the chairperson position herself. This elicits laughter from Blanche. Why on earth would Rose feel qualified? Her knowledge of fashion is so minimal, she mixed up Italian designer Giorgio Armani with television puppet Topo Gigio. Okay, several fun facts here. First, Giorgio Armani. He is still alive, and he is the richest out person in the world. Then, when I looked up what puppet Blanche was referencing and I found it was Topo Gigio, all I could hear was Tim Allen in the Santa Claus, having spent my entire life with that sound in my head, never knowing who he was referencing. Name? Père Noel. Babo Natale. Père's Nicole. Topo Gigio. As for the real Topo Gigio, he, like Giorgio, was Italian. Starting out on TV in the 60s, eventually he made it onto the Ed Sullivan Show, where Louis Mouse, in English, found worldwide fame. <laughs> we ate minestrone, pasta, fagioli, chicken, cacciatore, fettuccine, spaghetti, marinara, salti in bocca alla romana, ravioli, lasagne, provolone, gefilte fish and chow mein. Gavilta fish and chow mein. Oh, my family loves your American food. <laughs> Offended, Rose confronts Blanche and asks if she's implying that she's dumb. No, it's not that you're too dumb for the job, you're too tacky. Before their argument can continue, a ghostly figure comes down the hallway. Oh, it's just Dorothy in head-to-toe white from her white flesh boots to her ankle-length dress, up to the blouse that drops past her waist, a blouse that has double buttons, lace, and ruffles. Even with all of that going on, it is still better than the toilet paper dress from the finale. Seeking help from her friends in regards to her jewelry choice for the evening, Dorothy doesn't realize she has walked into a fashion-off between the girls. At first, Rose suggests Dorothy wear the silver chain, a laughable choice in Blanche's eyes, why it only brings attention to Dorothy's wrinkled turkey waddle of a neck. Standing up to take a closer look at her options, Rose examines Dorothy head to toe. Sure, she agrees, maybe the chain is bad for the neck, but the pearls only bring your eye to her complete lack of boobs. Blanche, now standing, utilizes the pencil in her hand to point out that the chain is so long, even though it is shorter than the pearls, it only draws the eye to Dorothy's spare tire, or fat waist, and her squared-off hips. Fed up with being the guinea pig, Dorothy suggests she just wear a cardboard sign inscribed, Too Ugly to Live. I suggest you all shut up and tell her not to wear a necklace at all. She has ruffles and lace going on already. 
Getting on board the deprecation train, Blanche asks if the sign will be hung by the pearls or the chain. Fed up, Dorothy shouts she'll simply paint it on her humped back. With this argument solving nothing, Rose has decided she knows as much as Blanche, so she's done with being her errand girl. She's going to run her own campaign. Now, instead of arguing about whether or not Rose is qualified, they're arguing about who has the better chance at winning. Rose is certain it won't be Blanche. The judges are all female. And like her ability to get parts in the local play, she won't be able to sleep with them to win. This is not only a great burn from Rose, but it's presented as a legitimate question. As Blanche angrily buffs her nails, she stokes the argument, asking Rose if that was a way of implying the only way that she could win would be via sexual favors. But before she can get an answer, Blanche has grown concerned and asks again, You're sure they're all women? Leaving Blanche to stew in the bevy of information she's received, Rose moves on to Dorothy, asking where she's going for the night. Well, she has another hot date with Raymond, and in order to keep it intimate betwixt the two of them, she asks Sophia to make a run to the drugstore. In all fairness, she's been allowing Sophia to partake in their dating for the last few weeks. They deserve a night alone. Just like sports commentator Jimmy the Greek deserved to be canceled after making these statements. Yeah, pretty soon they're going to have to equalize it for the blacks, for the Greeks, the Jews, and for everybody. I mean, let's make it equal for everybody, you know. And uh, is it equal? What about in sports? Well, they've got everything. If, if they take over coaching like everybody wants them to, there's not going to be anything left for the white people. I mean, all the players are black. I mean, the only thing that the whites control is the coaching jobs. Now, I'm not being derogatory about it, but that's all that's left for them. So black talent is beautiful. It's great. It's out there. The only thing left for the whites is a, a couple coaching jobs. Yeah, maybe we need to get more black coaches. Oh, it's all right with me. I'm sure that they'll take over that pretty soon, too. You can't say that. What's happening to free speech continues. Rose can't believe Dorothy is ditching her mother. Blanche can't believe it took her so long to do it. Dorothy isn't happy about it, but she's been stuck in the middle of nurturing a relationship and helping her mother through a tough time. Blanche thinks this whole dating your mother thing is a mess, and she's from the South. Blanche's concern is, of course, how Dorothy and Raymond have handled dating with Sophia around and being intimate. At first, Rose finds the question invasive, but she's quickly on board with Blanche and wants to know how they handle it. Dorothy can't say she hasn't had a chance to be close enough to handle anything yet. When the doorbell rings and Raymond arrives, Dorothy grabs her purse. Raymond says his hellos, and they both run out the door. Busted smoochin' on the porch, the night and kiss are interrupted by Sophia, who has made it back just in time after faking a heart attack in line at the store. My grandmere did that once to get on a flight. She didn't fake a heart attack, but she faked being an old lady that couldn't, that needed help. Whatever, man. You got to do what you got to do. <laughs> she was older. She was in yeah. her 70s by then. I think she had a cane, but she just needed it for like support. It wasn't like a full on walking assistance, you know? And they were like, for anyone, for families and seniors that need extra time. And she worked that cane, <laughs> made it just like, oh. <laughs> At the end of the flight, she was like, I can walk again. <laughs> Thank you, Delta. <laughs> when I'm old, I will exploit any little loophole. Give me my 5% discount, Goodwill. I'll definitely have a cane. <laughs> yeah, you will. Hopefully a robot body by that point. Oh, that'd be fun. When Dorothy announces that they were just headed out to dinner, Sophia invites herself, announcing how hungry she is. 
Hoping to deter her from the self-invite, Dorothy suggests they go to a French restaurant. Sophia is nearly as put off by the idea as Raymond is with Sophia accompanying them. When she tantrums about paying for snails, Raymond jumps at the opportunity, giving Sophia an out, offering for her to just stay home. Ah, but she'll manage to find something. More important than the food is the company. As Sophia giddily heads to the car, Raymond holds Dorothy back. In a frustrated tone, he shares he's getting to the end of his dating triangle rope. Dorothy promises this will be the last family date. She also promises she'll make sure that Sophia keeps her teeth in her mouth to pick them clean after the meal. Papa Gijo. Ooh la la, we're at a fancy restaurant that Dorothy is smitten with and Sophia is nostalgic about. In fact, it reminds her of her former lover, Charles de Gaulle who was the president of France during World War II, leading them in a fight against the Nazis. Raymond is lucky enough to now become a recipient of a St. Olaf, I mean, a Sicily story. Picture it. It's Sicily, 1921. Sophia heads to Paris, where Charles, famous for his hat and cape, was appreciated for his fashion. Stumbling upon the man at a restaurant, they spend the night drinking and laughing. When the place has closed down for the night and things started to get frisky between them, they left and began an affair. Just Sophia and mobster Charles the Mole. When Dorothy reminds her that she had started her story about Charles de Gaulle, Sophia laughs it off. Right, I could have married into basically royalty, but instead decided to settle down with Sal, Linguini on his shirt, Vador, picks his toenails clean with a tiny fork used for eating shrimp, Patrillo? As the trio recoils in despair after hearing the horrible details of Sophia's story, she moves on, verbally attacking the mood-setting violin player, dismissing him rudely as Itzak. This is in reference to Itzak Perlman, the incredibly talented, multiple-award-winning player. He has performed at the White House for the Queen and has been given the Presidential Medal of Freedom, 16 Grammys, including for Lifetime Achievement and four Emmys. As Raymond tries to not die from embarrassment, he's approached by the waiter, who is being played by Stephen M. Porter. Golden Girls was one of his first credits, but he is still acting today. And this is not the last time we'll see him as a waiter with the girls. He'll be back in a couple of seasons with the same job. Besides appearing in the underrated film Suburbicon, you've also seen him in Shameless, Heart of Dixie, Bones, Grey's Anatomy, Million Dollar Baby, ER, Buffy, Murphy Brown, Wings, Growing Pains, and in one of my faves, Best in Show. Cookie Googleman? Yeah? Does this ring a bell? I'm not wearing underwear. Bulge? Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Bulge? Yeah! Get out of town! <laughs> it's me! You look fantastic! Me too. <clears throat> You've grown. I'm growing right now, girl, just looking at you. That is the one and only time I've ever done it on a roller coaster. When Raymond begs to be relieved of the pain by ordering a bottle of scotch, Dorothy reminds him they still have a meal to survive, so he'll actually take a bottle of gin to numb it all. Getting home in one piece, hopefully after Dorothy drove, the ladies are delighted by how good their meal was. The rolls alone were spectacular, which is why my Grammy, I mean Sophia, put some in her bag. Sadly, she didn't have time to get coffee in there, just some matchbooks. Dorothy suggests they have a nightcap of some coffee, hopefully decaf, 
So Sophia finally leaves them alone for a moment to go make some, giving Raymond a chance to speak his mind. Kudos to Raymond. He not only has the right to be frustrated about the situation, but he handles it directly. He doesn't ghost Dorothy, doesn't ice her out, push her away, or just dump her without explanation. He says straight out that he needs to have alone time with her. So he suggests that they get away from Sophia by really getting away to the Bahamas, which is exactly what Sophia hears when she's back with coffee, and she is stoked for an island vacay. Perhaps sensing that this could have been a moment for Dorothy to correct her, Sophia continues. She's been so lonely, but with all the fun activities she's been able to do with the two of them, she's been nothing but happy. And now this? A trip to the Bahamas? The excitement has her singing the traditional Jamaican Calypso work song, Deo, which was most famously covered by Harry Belafonte. Her excitement is the antithesis of how the lovebirds are feeling. Sensing Ray's disappointment, Dorothy promises she will inform her mother she is not invited on their trip. Raymond appreciates that Dorothy loves her mother so much, he just doesn't love what it's doing to them. So he asks Dorothy if she's ever considered sending Sophia to a home, which she has every single day. Later that night at the kitchen table in her white nightgown and pink robe, Dorothy isn't able to sleep, so she's having a drink of probably caffeinated coffee when a blue-robed Rose comes in to check on her. While Dorothy is stuck trying to figure out how to break her mom's heart, Rose is dealing with a secret, something she's never told anyone. So she needs Dorothy to make a super serious promise, so serious that like Wally and the Beave from Leave it to Beaver, she wants them to do a spit shake on it. But she'll have to just take Dorothy at her word. Okay, here comes the big secret. Rose doesn't feel confident in her abilities to lead the Tinkerbells. Without hesitation, Dorothy backs her up. In her eyes, Rose is the most talented Tinkerbell, whatever the hell they are, she's ever seen. Before her gassing Rose up can go on, Blanche joins them in her white nightgown and dark pink, purple, and brown robe. She's up because she had a nightmare. Picture it. She was on an island with the stars of three men and a baby, Steve Gutenberg, Tom Selleck, and Ted Danson. Blanche was being passed around during what sounds like baby role play before having sex with once funny man and eventually punchline Steve Gutenberg, who you know from Three Men and a Baby and the Police Academy movies. Then she woke up, leaving sexy mustachioed Magnum P.I. Selleck and toupee and charming Danson on the sidelines. Coco, in your professional movie-loving opinion, what do you suppose happened with Steve Gutenberg? Because he kind of became like a Polly Shore joke. It was like, oh yeah, Steve Gutenberg. Was it just that he was everywhere? Was it that he really wasn't that funny and he got lucky with the movies? What happened? It's hard to say, but I've always liked Steve Gutenberg. I still do. I think it was I think it was his his film choices. I don't think he made mm. a lot of good They were obnoxious. Yeah, he made a lot of like obnoxious comedies. Yeah. Yeah. But he's a good actor. He's great in Cocoon. Oh, he yeah, had a, uh, one of his first parts was in that movie Black Sunday we watched about oh, the, yeah, that's great. the blimp trying to kill everyone at the Love Super Bowl. Black Sunday. So good. Uh, yeah, he was like the first guy in that. I think he gets, he's the first guy to get killed from, uh, from for finding out too much. But I think it was because I can think of one in particular, a movie of his that I cannot remember what it's called, but he like 
pretends to be like a badass dude, mm. but he's that doesn't work. He's doing it to like trick a woman into liking him, sort of thing. Ooh. I think uh, it's like not unconditionally yours or unconventionally oh, yours or something yeah, like that. that. Rings a bell. And the poster is him with like a mullet, and of he's course. standing with a with a person, a woman, I think, in in, in front of a motorcycle, and his arms Pretty are cool. crossed, and he has fingerless gloves. I think he made bad choices, and I feel like he really was everywhere for a chunk of time to where it was like, please leave us alone. Well, I think people probably also got really sick of the Police Academy movies. Yeah. I mean, after the second one. Yeah. And then it was probably like, hey, man, it's cool that you're in all these movies, but like bring it down. Like you're not the coolest person yeah. on the planet. Can no you, one is. Can you goot it down a bird? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> we love you, Steve. He was yeah. so good in Lava Lantula. And he in what? Lava Lantula? Is that an avalanche of lava? No, no, it's a volcano of tarantulas. <gasps> it erupts and it's all tarantulas? Yeah. And that's a sci-fi movie? It is. Oh my god. Sorry. I don't even want to look up the photo of that movie because I don't want to see a mountain erupting of in lava spiders. Well, they're lava spiders. They're not just spiders, they're like I think they're molten. Whatever it is. Well, that I would think that would be less scary as a movie villain because it's, well, it's slightly preposterous. Now they're just hot. Now you got hot spiders. Movie that's got danger. That's <laughs> got action. That's got Gutenberg. I saw spiders the size of men spitting fire out of their mouths. Fire out of their mouths. I hate spiders. This is my city. <laughs> When Blanche realizes Dorothy is upset, she thinks it's because Sophia didn't respond to the information as she would have wanted. Rose corrects her. It's not that. It's because Dorothy hasn't even broken the news to Sophia. But Dorothy just doesn't know how to break her own mother's heart. Rose and Blanche see not only the hesitation in telling Sophia no about the trip, but the whole group dating thing is a mistake. Everyone needs their own time and space. Sophia should be understanding. On top of that, you've got to hold on to Raymond. For the first time in weeks, months, years, perhaps decades, Dorothy has gone on a date with a man and he didn't dump her immediately. Dorothy knows they aren't wrong, but logic can't exist when it comes to your mother's feelings. She'll just have to figure out what works best for both of them. Just like Sonia Klingenhofer did, Rose adds. Realizing they're in for a story, Dorothy agrees with Rose before attempting to leave. Well, Rose just can't believe that Dorothy knows of Sonia. Playing along, Dorothy claims she did know the woman. But Sonia wasn't a woman. Or a cow, a pig, a duck, or a horse, or even a pencil sharpener. Everything Dorothy guesses is wrong, so she begs Blanche to join in. When Rose explains that Sonia was a comic strip, Blanche agrees and even pretends to have read it, commenting on how good of a comic it is. Blanche and Dorothy make a run for the door, but Rose stops them with a threat. They can stay and hear the story now, or she can follow them and recreate the scene using sock puppets. So the girls take a seat. I love the idea of her following them, but recreating the scene with sock puppets twice, because they would each just go into their own room. I'm sure she has the routine down pat. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, the fact that that was her first thing to go to. She had her. Like, I've got this thing ready. She had her, yeah, her whatever, Deborah Klingenhofer. I practice Amos and Andy <laughs> and Sonia Klingenhofer with my sock puppets. With a captive 
well, really hostage audience, Rose starts telling the story of the comic, panel by panel. As Sonia walks down the road, the neighborhood children laugh at her. She explains her braces make it impossible to get a white bread and mayo sandwich out of her teeth. When Rose gets to panel three, Blanche interrupts, wondering just how many panels there are to the comic. Rose answers, 16. Without the patience for such a tale, Dorothy requests Rose just jump right to the end. She supposes she can, but the gals will miss out on the hilarious joke between the crows on the phone line. They don't care. They just want the whole ordeal over with. So Rose goes to the end. Sonia tells her mother. Her mother understands. Since that makes no sense and Blanche's foot has fallen asleep, they do the unthinkable. They ask Rose to clarify. See, Sonia had told her mother the joke the crows had made, so now they'll need to hear it. Having had enough, Dorothy screams for Rose to get out, even throwing her arm up as if she was giving a demand to a dog. Rose understands and tries to leave but can't because Sophia was on the other side of the door and she hit her in the face with it. Sophia's not upset. She always wanted her nose to be broken and shaped like champion boxer Joe Frazier's. Knowing that's Sophia's favorite spot for eavesdropping, Dorothy asks how much she heard them talking about. Oh, Sophia hadn't been standing there long enough to hear anything. Oh, really? Dorothy asks. So then why did you have your face pressed against the crack? Spawning a delightful, that's what the crow said from Rose, who then, after another get out from Dorothy, scurries away. It's a few days before the trip. In her room, in all baby blue, is Sophia, who is packing her best Bahamas gear, including an already inflated floaty and a magical dress that needs to be folded over and over. When Dorothy, in a multi-patched jacket of corals and dark seafoam green and white, comes in. It's not actually magical. It was a continuity error. She just kept folding the same dress. With a solemn tone, Dorothy brings up the trip, which is perfect timing. Sophia is not going. Dorothy had been right. Sophia needed to get out there, make new friends. So that's exactly what she did. And now she's headed to Cancun for the weekend with those friends, one of which conveniently has a timeshare there. Dorothy finds the whole thing odd, not in a, hey, you maybe shouldn't travel internationally or like anywhere with people you just met, but more in a, this is really convenient timing and perhaps you heard me talking about you not going on our trip, so you're just making all of this up. But really, Sophia swears on the Wiener Schnitzel that now sits atop Salvador's grave, she is going on a trip. Dorothy doesn't believe her. She knows her ma too well. She doesn't want her to feel bad about the trip or to make up stories, so she removes herself from the equation. So Dorothy is going to cancel her trip and stay home with Sophia. In this tender mother-daughter moment, Sophia can't help but be moved into calling her daughter a yutz. Sophia reiterates, you told me to make friends. I made friends. Thanks for being there for me when I needed it, but I no longer need you to. With looks to one another that say, I know you're lying, the Petrillo women separate. It's the morning of the trip. Raymond, sporting a very fancy yellow windbreaker, is begging Dorothy to change her mind and go with him. But she knows that if she were to leave, she wouldn't enjoy herself as she'd be too stressed thinking about Sophia. She'd also be laying on a beautiful beach, drinking wonderful drinks, dancing romantically, and most likely, she'd finally be able to get a handle on it. The guilt and pity towards her mother has morphed into bitterness and resentment. As much as she may hate her mother, she still has to do what's right for her. 
like wearing her purple and black Beetlejuice blouse again. Raymond fully understands. He even appreciates how loving and caring of a daughter Dorothy is, but she is one hell of a bad girlfriend. So Raymond does what he needs to do and calls things off, only temporarily. Perhaps Sophia can get settled, and once she doesn't demand so much of Dorothy, they can reconnect. Without any tears or anger, they kiss and go their separate ways. Before Dorothy can mourn the end of the relationship, Rose and Blanche are back from the election. Blanche, in all white, and Rose in a pink dress with blue flowers, are just devastated. They lost to Fifi, the wife of a plastic surgeon. Fashion knowledge or not, they never stood a chance against her offer of two cheeks lipoed for the price of one. Coming out in fabulously tropical vacation wear, Sophia has her suitcase in hand, and just like Rose is shocked she's still there. Her ride was due over an hour ago. But Dorothy has had it. Sophia can stop with this whole charade. When Dorothy suggests they go to a movie, Sophia tells her to stick that movie where the sun don't shine because she'll be laying where it does, on a sunny beach, getting all her crevices filled with sand. When the doorbell rings and Blanche answers it, the whole house is surprised to see Duncan, played by Frank Smith, who had no other acting credits. And he's there to take Sophia to Cancun. He's such a gentleman, he even takes her luggage out for her. Finally, Dorothy realizes Sophia is leaving. Yeah, Sophia argues, I told you over and over I was. But Dorothy's still confused. All this time, she'd been saying how sad and lonely she was. So she stepped in as a daughter, which Sophia recognizes and appreciates. Like she always is and has been, Dorothy was there for her when she needed her. But now she's ready to focus on her friends and live her own life. Adios! No one ever really references Raymond as a boyfriend that the fans wish had come back, but I always did. I know, like, for Blanche, there was Jake, and, you know, there's been different boyfriends, but I feel like they were really sweet. They didn't get that time to explore what they had, and he's like, I'll call you in a couple weeks. She could have called him right then and be like, guess what? My mom is leaving the country. We should go to the Bahamas. But we never get to see him again. And it's really too bad, too, because they were super honest with each other about it pretty much from the beginning. Yeah. Even with the frustrations of Sophia, uh, he was still willing to say that to her, even though they were kind of like newly dating. I thought that was, a, I mean, that's just a good thing. Yeah, it was <laughs> Communication, like a healthy, it was a yeah, healthy relationship. It was healthy, yeah. So it wasn't, it didn't have a big, a big ending, but it did in a way. Because yeah. it was, it was just like this, this, I think, well, it's like the, um, when Blanche was dating that guy who, who was like a sailor cook guy yeah jake same thing yeah you know where it's just like we we are compatible in that we have like the same sort of uh joie de vivre or whatever where mm -hmm. they're both like active people but most people aren't a match and most relationships yeah and it's don't just, work and it's just a bummer when you have uh yeah that really open communication from the beginning with someone like that to be like i'm super into you i have a problem with this though we need to figure it out it's like that's someone to go back you know, call yeah. back to and be like, yeah, call him back up. You got to get a handle on that thing. <laughs> when you have someone in your life needing your attention and love, it can be hard to keep your personal boundaries. But if being there for someone, even your own mother, is taxing on you, then you aren't helping anyone. Of course, Sophia could have shown some restraint and refrained from going on at least a date or two. But in the end, she was the most open and honest about her needs. She was lonely, vocalized her needs, did what she needed to get them met, and once they were, she was able to move on and get back on her feet. 
Dorothy was being a wonderful daughter, and she wouldn't have been a bad daughter if she communicated with Sophia, saying, hey, Raymond and I are going on vacation, but you can hang out with Rose and Blanche. I know you don't want to be alone, but I also can't give you all of my time or give up on my relationship. Otherwise, I'll be the one needing to be the third wheel. The more honest and open you are to those you care about, the more you'll meet their needs and yours. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when Sophia flirts with legal trouble in Larceny and Old Lace. Maybe it's just an economical decision that they share a bed. Topless? I mean, I don't care if the bed has sheets on it. (laughs) Informing Rose that she needs to borrow a golf club. Glub. How dare you? (laughs) It's club and glove. My nose got clogged. You only moved the headstones. (laughs) And then, why? (laughs) Blanche thinks the whole dating your mother thing is a mess. Mess. Oh, you... you did too much sex doll shopping. Just an hour. <laughs> it was for research. Mm-hmm. For today, for this moment. <laughs> I recommend head number 313. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, just for the record, I am not into that. Hey, man. Hey. You this isn't to defend for the re- what you're into. This isn't for the recording. I am not. <laughs> Obviously. I am not into that. May the record show. Yeah, no thank you. Uh, I like it real. Golden girls. Different Pat. I loved friends named Patrick when I was a kid. Oh, yeah? You have a gaggle of them? Well, no. Just that I think that was common because I went to Catholic school. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Irish Catholic. Yeah. So Irish. So Catholic. (laughs) The reddest faces you've ever seen in your life. The sweetest little Mexican boy. That's me. I am not into dolls at all. Can I order one of those in a doll? Just grip it. Don't rip it. Because boys are double crazy straws. I mean, I wouldn't suck out of either, <laughs> out of any of the straws. <laughs> Not a good idea. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.